We are in the 17th message of the series. We're one chapter away of being halfway through the book. Just a reminder that, the, that Revelation is the only book in the Bible that actually says, read me, I'm special. It says, if you read me aloud in church, you will be blessed, those that hear it. It also states in Revelation 1.1, this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And as we're seeing, it's revealing things about him we didn't necessarily see in the four gospels. When he was walking the earth, many scholars believe the point we're at, Revelation 10, that we are midway through the tribulation, 42 months through. You have 21 judgments in the book of Revelation, seven sealed judgments, seven trumpet judgments, seven vile, or some call them bowl judgments. We've gone through in detail seven sealed judgments Six of the seven trumpet judgments. Interestingly enough, chapter 10 is, it's like an interlude in these judgments. Um, and it, and, it, and it's, one of, it's one of the harder ones. You know, Dad warned me getting into this because he did a 27-week series once on Revelation. And he said, Jim, Jim, there's just some chapters you just, they're just not real interesting. And so I'm not <laughs> I really tried with this one. I believe the Lord, the Lord put some interesting stuff in there, but before we have the, the, the seventh trumpet blow, and that is the case with the seal judgments and the bold judgments, also between six and seven in the seals, trumpets and bowls, there's an interlude. Between the sixth and seventh seal, we saw an interlude. We'll see another interlude between the sixth and seventh bowl judgment. This little interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet judgments lasts through verse 14 of chapter 11. They, scholars call these a parenthesis. Uh, they're explaining events which are not part or, or in the context of the seal judgments, trumpet judgments, vile judgments, but they're happening at the same time. Just because I'm using the word interlude, it doesn't mean that the, the, the judgments, there's no interlude. They just, they're just coming. These are just things that are happening at the same time as the judgments. In regard to all these judgments, we're only told how long one judgment lasts. That's the fifth trumpet judgment. The demon locusts, they lasted five months. So looking at Revelation 10.1, it's 11 verses. I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was at, as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. So this is very, this is very argued about guy here, this angel. Um, you know, looking at the word angel, it can... In the Greek, it can refer to a man, a messenger, or it can refer to Jesus in some cases. The actual Greek meaning is messenger. Many scholars believe this is Jesus Christ because the descriptions are so similar when you see Jesus described in Revelation 1, 
chapter 1, 12 through 16, even in Daniel 10, 5 and 6, very similar descriptions to Jesus Christ as he appears in heavenly form. And I would say they are split down the middle. Is this a, a powerful angel or is this Jesus Christ? No one know, knows who it's going to be completely until we actually see this happen, which will be approximately 42 months into the tribulation, we will be watching from heaven. Other scholars that do not believe it's Jesus Christ believe it's a, a very powerful angel that has great authority and is allowed to stand in the presence of God and speak for God. There are problems with the view that this spiritual being is Jesus Christ. And, and, and that's where a lot of scholars believe it's a powerful angel. This is the key angel playing a key role Revelation 10.1 says, I saw another mighty angel. Another now. In the Greek language, there are two words for that word another. One of them is alos. The other Greek word for another is hederos. If I want to watch exactly like the one I have, I use the word alos. If I want to watch that's different than the one I have, I use the word hederos. And so in the English word, there is only one word for another. But in the Greek language, there's two words. And so one's the same as, another's different than. All that to say that this Greek word, another, angel, means the same kind of angel, alos. This angel is a lot like the other angels John had already encountered. When did he encounter it? Revelation 5, 2. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals? This is why I do not, I do not personally believe this is Jesus Christ. This is another angel, and the Greek word used is it's the same one like he had seen before, just like that one. And again, describing in Greek, the same one, very, very similar. Looking at the phrase in 10.1, this angel was robed in a cloud, and he had a rainbow above his head. Well, this is not the first time you see God clothed in a cloud. We have God coming down to Mount Sinai in a cloud. He led the Israelites with a pillar of cloud in the wilderness. Jesus ascended to heaven in a cloud, and the Bible says he's going to return in the clouds. Let's look at one of the examples, Exodus 40, 34 through 38. Then the cloud, the Amplified describes that as Shekinah, God's visible presence, covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud remained upon it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the Israelites unpacked up and left. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not journey until the day that the cloud picked up and left. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud was of the Lord, was upon the tabernacle by day and fire in, in the night, and in sight of all of them. They could always see it. Talking about the uh, rainbow upon the angel's head, or if it is Jesus Christ, it points towards peace and mercy. 
And it really is signifying what, what is ultimately going to come upon the earth. And we might as well just go into detail here. Genesis 9, 13 through 16. I do set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth, that bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I'll remember my covenant, which is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. Revelation 10, 1, the description of either this mighty archangel or Jesus Christ says his face was as it were the sun. This is describing a degree of glory, probably of such magnitude, it will defy all description. A face that's shining like the sun as if it were the sun. And looking at the phrase, his feet were as pillars of fire. Looking at the rainbow over his head, mercy and peace are available and offered multiple times in the tribulation. But his feet, being pillars of fire, is speaking of judgment. Verse 2, he had in his hand a little book or a scroll. And he set his right foot, this angel, upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth. We see that he's got this little scroll in his hand. And this is the same book that we saw in Revelation 5.5. One of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals. Now this book that the angel is holding, commentators believe is carrying instructions and direction in regards to these last day events. What's coming in the last three and a half years, which ultimately lead to, to the second coming of Jesus. You see, this angel has got his right foot still in the ocean, left foot on the earth, and they're all comparing this to, you know, MacArthur in the Philippines, you know, steps out of the boat, right? Like, this is mine, claiming it, or explorers, one foot on the sea, one foot on the land. It's a sign of possession, or represents possession. Um, This angel very well could be Jesus Christ, because of his feet, a face like the sun, these are all familiar idioms that we connect to Jesus Christ in other parts of the Bible. The feet like fire, you've got Jesus himself, those same feet in Revelation 1. We're coming to a verse that says, this angel roars like a lion. You're going to see in the next verse, well, you got Jesus roaring like a lion in Revelation chapter 5. That's a Jesus that no one's seen. So I, I can't get over the Greek word about another, meaning the same angel that we had seen before. And I mean, we've got Jesus appearing in the Old Testament as an angel of the Lord. Here's the bottom line. There's no doctrinal issue. It, it doesn't affect doctrine, whether if it's a high-ranking angel or Jesus Christ himself. Verses three and four. And cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, verse 4, I was about to write. 
And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. Don't write that, John. The, the seven thunders is a symbol for the voice of God. And what's interesting here is God spoke. John's going to write it down. And John is told not to write it down. And no one knows why John was not able to record what he heard the seven thunders say. Quote, quoting this scholar prophecy expert named Oliver B. Green, already set before us are blood, tears, famine, heartaches, heartbreak, killing, misery, hail, fire, burning mountains, demon monstrosities, men begging to die, and unable to do so. Surely what John has forbidden to write must have been beyond human imagination and understanding. Isn't it interesting? We'll never know, possibly never know, what the seven thunders will say or what they meant, unless he tells us. Chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. The angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted his hand up to heaven, and he swears, I swear by him, that liveth forever and ever who created heaven, the things that are in and are, and the earth and the things that are, that are therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be no time longer. No delay here. It's so interesting. I know I keep going to this argument. But the guys that think it's Jesus... Because one commentator said, there's no angel that has spoken in the word of God is swearing any type of oath. You don't see that anywhere. But we know God has sworn several oaths. You have a, a guy in Daniel 10, 5, and 6 that some scholars believe is Jesus Christ. That same guy in Daniel 12, 7 is believed to be Jesus Christ, swears an oath. Stands with his hands to heaven and did swear by him who lives forever and ever. But the commentators think that this is an angel because the angel in, is, in essence, swearing by Christ. What does he say? He raised his right hand and he swore in the name of him who lives forever and ever. I mean, you have God swearing by himself, putting himself to oath when he made a covenant to Abraham. You can see that oath in Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. Hebrews 7, you have God swearing by himself when he claimed Jesus to be our high priest. So in Revelation 10, 6, the angel says there will be no delay. What's he saying? This is an answer to prayer for the martyred tribulation saints who've been waiting for God and his vengeance for the millions of tribulation saints that have been martyred even three and a half years in before it really even gets bad, bad. It's already bad, bad. Before it gets bad, bad, bad. <laughs> and where do we see that? Revelation 6, 9, 9 through 11. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. They cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord? Holy and true, does thou not judge and avenge our blood, calling for vengeance in heaven on them that dwell on the earth. And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them, 
that they should rest for a little season unto their fellow servants, until their fellow servants and their brethren, other Christians, that should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. And John said, he got to view all that, and he said, you couldn't count them. There's so many of them. That's uncountable numbers. So there'll be, the gospel will be preached. These types of messages will be preached. People will be very aware about the mark of the beast if they're willing to give their lives not to get it. Many scholars, Revelation 10, 7, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants and prophets. This, many scholars believe, this voice of the seventh angel, it is proclaiming the beginning of the last half of the tribulation. Some commentators believe in the phrase, when the days come, is referring to Revelation eleven fifteen and the seventh trumpet judgment, which is the third woe. And the spiritual world and all this is going to be much more ramped up. The vile judgments, called the bold judgments, will be worse than what, what we have already seen in the tribulation, compiled with the fact that Satan will be cast down into the earth from heaven, Spend a whole week on why that's, that happens. It will strengthen the Antichrist even more in regards to him dominating the world. And at that point, he turns on Israel. So you have all this going on at that time, and you have that going on in verse 7, when the days come, when the trumpet call of the seventh angel is about to be sounded. Then notice, verse 7 spoke of God's mystery. His secret design, his hidden purpose, as he announced to the prophets, would be fulfilled, accomplished, completed. I'm quoting the Amplified. What mystery? What mystery? It's referring to the fact that in Revelation, we're going to see Satan being cast out of heaven. All this takes place during the seventh trumpet judgment. This will be the beginning stage. So we will come back to that when we get to that again. I kind of skipped to explain it one week. But what mystery? Well, 6,000 years, sin has had its way on the earth. Think about it. It's had its way. It's dominated every civilization. There's not one person in this world whose physical body doesn't decay every single day based on sin. There's no life that doesn't end in death. We're going to I believe we're going to see the rapture. So we won't see it, but for the most part, there's no heart that hasn't been broken. You could really say there's no heart that hasn't been darkened to some extent. There's not one family that hasn't experienced the results of sin. But sin has also filled the earth with graves. We just read in verse 7 that this mystery will be finished. And if you think about this, mystery of sin. It's caused a lot of God's people to stumble. More than any other experience in life, while the atheists and the unbelievers mock, mock Christians, mock the Bible, mock the validity of the Bible, mock God. And then Revelation 10, 8, and 9, then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke again to me saying, go, take the little book, 
the scroll, which is open on the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea on the land. So I went up to the angel, asked him to give me the little book. He said to me, take it and eat it, and it will embitter your stomach, though in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. We have the voice from heaven that is back talking to John. Last time it told him not to write certain things down, but here it says, take the book from the angel's hand. Then the angel holds his hand down to John. John takes the book, and the angel says, eat the book. John did what the angel told him to. I'm sure John was aware of this other situation. Ezekiel 2, verse 9, first through chapter 3, verse 3. When I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out unto me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and he spread it before me, and it was written within on the back, and written on it were words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, Eat what you find in this book. Eat this scroll. Then go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat the scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. I do believe like what happened to Apostle John, the scroll turned bitter after Ezekiel ate it in his stomach because the Holy Spirit at that point, transported Ezekiel back to the Jewish exiles at the river Chabar, and he was so overwhelmed at what he saw, he was immobile for a week. He didn't move for a week. Let's look at the second half of that, Ezekiel 3, 14 and 15. The Spirit lifted me up, took me away, and I went in bitterness of discouragement in the heat of my spirit, and the hand of the Lord was strong upon me, then I came to them of the captivity at Tel Aviv, who sat and dwelt by the river of Chabar, and I sat where they sat and remained there among them seven days, overwhelmed with astonishment and silence. In Revelation 10, when John was told to eat the book, it symbolized the message in the world being internalized, internalized inside both John and Ezekiel. I believe it. It made it so John wrote, wrote it. When he wrote the rest of this book, it caused him to write in the words of God because these words are now inside of him, opposed to using his own words. At first, it tastes like honey or sweet in regards to those who wind up in safety. By Revelation 4.1, the rapture and then the bitterness symbolizes the devastation of God's wrath which turned John's stomach. Verses 10 and 11. So I took the little book from the angel's hand, ate it, swallowed it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but once I swallowed it, my stomach was embittered. Then they said to me, you are to make a fresh prophecy concerning many peoples and races and nations, languages, and kings. You know, the book of Revelation in itself is a bittersweet book. Pre-tribulation church, knowing we will not be here for these devastating judgments. If you have Jesus in your heart, believe that he died and rose again, is relief. That's the good part. But then you have to look at all the people that are going to be deceived by the Antichrist and see him as their Messiah. 
Can you imagine this world actively worshiping a man, bowing down, putting their faces on, a, on the ground? This would be required. Required. And they will view him that way until he puts himself in the temple, the tribulation temple, or it could be a statue of himself in the tribulation temple to be worshiped, and then the world starts to rebel. You got part of the world turning their hearts to God where they become violently martyred, and the rest of the world continues to reject Jesus, receives the mark of the beast, and those are the people sentenced for an eternity in hell. That's the bitter part. That's the fight. That's the fight right now, really. As we move farther into the book, we see the shift take place as this second interlude concludes. We've been talking about seal judgments, trumpet judgments, but in the upcoming chapters, we meet the two witnesses, one of the, the, the most interesting parts of the book. Enoch and Elijah you know, back down here. And some people think Moses, but, but in the upcoming chapters, we meet him. We meet the whore of Babylon. You see a lot of what's going on in the spirit. You hear a lot more about the Antichrist himself, the false prophet, and in the end, Jesus returning for good. Switching gears as we start to close, I went back to the book by Dr. Frederick T. Zugaib, MD, PhD, called The Crucifixion of Jesus, A Forensic Inquiry. And, and again, just to remind you why I go here so much, why I want to keep you here a little bit, at least every week. 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, I resolve to know nothing, to be acquainted with nothing, to make a display of the knowledge of nothing, and to be conscious of nothing among you church, except Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and him crucified. This doctor goes through in detail in this book the actual physical effects of the nailing of the hands and the feet to the cross. He says if, if, you, if you clench your fist, okay, if you clench it tightly and bend the wrist forward, there's a palmaris longus tendon will stick out in the center of the front of the wrist. He says, nine, this is nine out of 10 people. This tendon is used to locate something called the median nerve, which, which lies directly to the right. Okay, right there. And when they put the nail through the, 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 the medical effects of nailing the hands to each side of the cross piece, it was through that nerve, because many doctors believe that's the only thing that could hold him up there. The hand would have ripped eventually. There's a name for it. It's the pain that's experienced with this medial nerve. Um, you can see references to it, injuries to this median nerve they started studying in the Civil War. So many Civil War veterans had this, this nerve injured. It's a pain described as unrelenting. It has burning sensation. It feels like parts of your arm are being seared and it's so intense that even light brushes against the skin. 
I'm paraphrasing this doctor, or even a draft of air causes utter physical torture. It can be aggravated by noise or emotion, any movement at all, and the pain shoots through the arms like lightning bolts. This doctor is saying this is exactly what Jesus would have experienced in his arms through the nails. You know, he was hung to the cross there, and all we're doing here is what Paul said to do in 1 Corinthians 2.2. We're displaying knowledge. In this case, medical knowledge and making ourselves conscious of the crucifixion. So on the cross, with lightning bolts of pain shooting through his arms, this doctor said Jesus would have been preoccupied with trying to get his arm in a particular position, which would have been impossible because he had to continue to breathe. And the only way you can breathe in is hang and breathe out is push up. So they, it would have been just lightning bolts of searing pain constantly. And every time he did it, it was like lightning bolts through his arms. The condition of the median nerve where the nails were put through the wrist area, that pain, that condition is called... Uh, Kazalgia, Kazalgia, the doctor says, completely destroys the morale of the most stoic individual. It causes them to cry out consistently. Also, this condition, Kazalgia, in the study of these Civil War injuries to soldiers who had their medial nerves damaged, the pain will become more severe with an increase in temperature. It said that none of the patients were able to tolerate, tolerate direct contact with sun rays. In addition, in addition, the very act of lifting and mounting the cross piece of the cross, you know, he had to lay down, boom, boom, boom. They, they, nail, they nail it through, and then Roman soldiers on each side would pick it up. So they'd lift him up. It, would bring, it brought a renewed searing or burning and radiating pains due to the pull of the hands or wrist against the nails. And in raising the cross piece would have caused brutal pain in the exact words of Dr. Zugad, a marked increase in the degree of traumatic shock. Remember last week we talked about, he, this guy says Jesus died of hypovolemic and traumatic shock from the pain. I did find a part in this book where this doctor talks about being in a great area of controversy. See, I'm having to back up on, on stuff that I've preached. I'm just going to be straight, right? We, it's, it's, this is among crucifixion scholars. There's scholars that, that this is all they study. Whether if Jesus' feet were nailed separately with two nails or one on top of the other, with one long inch nail, nine inch nail. It's, it's a great debate. So which is it? Well, this is interesting. Change my point of view. He says that in John 19, 33 and 36, Psalm 34, 20, 
Numbers 9, 12, Exodus 12, 46. The scriptures relate that no one, not one of Jesus' bones would be broken. Okay? This doctor says it would be extremely difficult to put one nail through one foot on top and the other without fracturing any of the bones using large spike-like nails like the one found in the Mivtar excavation. They've actually found uh, nails in heel bones through archaeology. Show pictures of it. He, he also points to writings by a saint by the name of Bridget. Scholars seem to look at her commentary a lot that state Jesus, she states Jesus' feet were fixed with two nails. Numerous writer, he cite, writers, he cites uh, a guy named Gregory of Tours in the 6th century, writes of four nails total for the hands and feet. Dr. Zubag, Zugai describes both points of view. Numerous other early writers, a different St. Gregory of uh, Nazian, St. Bonaventure, and another saint by the name of Anselm, all, three, all support the three-nail theory for the hands and feet. Then he talks about a U.S. scholar that says one nail pierced the metacarpal area of one of the feet while a second nail passed through the front of the ankle through the heel. He uses the same medical word as he used for the pain Jesus experienced in his arms called causalgia, causalgia in Jesus' feet would have been severe where if it were one nail through two feet or two nails with the iron nail pressing against the plantar nerves, it would have been similar to what, what was suffered with the median nerve injuries when the nail went through the hands, the nails went through the, the wrists. Even the slightest movement would incite burning and searing pains after a short period of time on the cross, just shooting up his leg, legs and arms. We're thinking, you know, there's so much more that happened to him. And he would have experienced severe cramps, numbness. His calves and thighs would have felt cold. It would have forced Jesus to arc his body in an attempt to straighten his legs so he could breathe out. You know, this guy, they, they have pictures in the book. They took volunteers and they strapped them to crosses and made them stay up there as long as they could and then, and then monitored them medically, right? To just see what happens. Where's the heart rate, you know? What are the vital signs reading? So just kind of something this Dr. Zugab calls the resurrection reconstruction of Jesus. And I'm paraphrasing some of this because all the words, the big words he uses Jesus was in a state of early traumatic and hypovolemic shock when he arrived at the cross before the nails were driven in. The brutal pains from the nailing of his hands and feet added to the unrelenting pains from the causalgia of the median nerves in his wrist and the plantar nerves in his feet. The severe trauma to the chest wall, the lung trauma, and highly probable lung hemorrhages 
from the brutal scourging. The increased fluid loss and increasing pleural infusion, the, the infusion, the profuse sweating, the losses of one-fifth of the volume of blood in his body would have augmented this degree of shock, causing a further increase in lightheadedness, shortness of breath. His heart would have been pounding against his, his chest in an, an attempt to compensate for all the fluid losses and the degree of shock he was experiencing more and more and more. And the pain would have been, been accentuated because of his fatigue. And makes a great, great point here. Dr. Zugab quotes another doctor that says it's been proven that patients who were well rested and have good night's sleep previous to an unpleasant experience will have a much higher pain tolerance threshold than an individual who is tired and worn down. And we know Jesus was up all night after sweating blood at Gethsemane after that suffered a serious, the scourging, the thorns beaten into his head. I believe his face was deformed from those soldiers. All these episodes, and he was in a severely exhausted condition, a state of severe pain and increasing shock. The pains would have been unrelenting, brutal, causing severe burning sensations all over his body. And the doctor states even movements of air, direct sunlight, the hot Middle Eastern temperature, the pressure of the nails constantly rubbing against the nerves, any movement to breathe up and down, up and down on the cross, all this would come into play. It's... Uh, can we, put this, can we put the sculpture up? And this isn't like something like a relic, like we worship the picture. No, it's, 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 there's no other picture like this out there. You can search. If you find one that's better, send it to me. If, we get, if he, the author gives us permission or the artist. Because all this, I mean, that's, that's what he's feeling. I just, I just want to make sure that, you know, based on the messages and being in Revelation, and I believe we are in the end times. You know, have you, have you given your heart to Jesus? Do you really know him? I would be doing a disservice if I didn't do that and do that in these messages. So I just want to ask you guys as we as we close if you could just bow your heads and close your eyes. Have you you're going to do this right in your seat. No one's looking around. Have you really given your heart to him? Have you really done that? Because he, he went through the hard stuff so that you could just say, yes, I want him. 
Yes, I believe he died and rose again. It's that easy. So I just want to make sure if, if, if you, and, and also online, it's just a button you click, say, I want, I want, I want to ensure my eternal security tonight. I want to ask Jesus in my heart to be my Savior and be my Lord from right where I'm sitting tonight. I just ask if you want to do that, raise your hand, raise your hand now. Raise your hand in the sanctuary or hit that, click that button online and show me. Show me if you would like to accept him as your Lord and Savior. I see the four hands in the middle there. Thank you so much. You can put those down. Thank you. I see a hand in the balcony. Thank you for that hand. Any other hands? Any hands online? Let me know online. See that, see that hand straight back. Thank you so much. Another hand in the balcony. Thank you. Seven. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. That's good. Seven last week. At least seven this week. If, 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 there, if, if something's telling you to raise your hand, that's not the devil. That's the Holy Spirit. Number eight online. Thank you, Lord. Thank you online. We're going to all say this prayer together. And when we say this prayer, I know because this has happened to me, and you walk out of here and the devil right away, oh, you're not saved. That doesn't count. There's so much more you have to do. No, there's not. No, there's not. You laugh at that. Thank you for the second hand online. You laugh at that. It's through a prayer. And the fact that you raise your hand, you know what you're saying? You're already saying, I believe. You believe enough to raise your hand and show me that you want him. Thank you, Lord. Third hand online. Thank you, Lord. So let's just, just repeat this prayer after me. I just ask if everyone in here would would do this. Just repeat this prayer after me. Dear God in heaven, I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe he died for my sins on the cross and was raised from the dead three days later. I ask you, Jesus, to come into my heart, to be my Savior, and be my Lord. Thank you for saving me tonight. March 11, 2023. You are my Savior and Lord. Amen. Amen.